and chapter 4 and verse 4. Philippians 4, 4. The title of this message is The Holy War, Part 2, Fight for Constant Joy. Let me read our verse for this morning as we begin, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. One of the universal realities of humanity is that everybody wants to be happy. I think that is true of everybody here. Raise your hand if you do not want to be happy. Ten out of ten people want to be happy. Regardless of age, gender, race, or religion, everyone pursues happiness without exception. According to the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. They are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit, can you finish it, of happiness. One of the reasons that millions of people from all over the world immigrate to the United States is because they are in the pursuit of happiness, and they are under the impression that they can find it here. We take happiness very, very seriously. We even have a little symbol for happiness, the little circle, smiley face that is oftentimes yellow. But the reality is this. Even though everybody without exception is pursuing happiness, there are in fact very few happy people. Very few. With this in mind, let me say this. The Bible is a manual of joy. It is a manual of joy. It is a happy book. And the secret of happiness is really not a secret to anyone who will simply open the Bible and read it because it reveals the true path, the true pursuit of happiness. And as we think about the Bible being a manual of joy, we must begin with the fact that God Himself is a happy God. The basis of our happiness is God's happiness. One of the most influential books that has ever been written in my life and in the life of many others is John Piper's book, Desiring God. It is a must-read If you have not read Desiring God, you must read it. Chapter 1 of Desiring God is entitled, The Happiness of God. I love that title. The Happiness of God. Not only is God a happy God, He is, listen, the most happy being in the universe. He is infinitely happy. Our understanding of God is often dominated by the thought that He is an angry God. And God certainly is angry. He is angry with the wicked every single day, according to Psalm 7, verse 11. 
Sinners are in the hands of an angry God. God is a consuming fire. One of his attributes is indeed wrath, which hangs over unrepentant, unbelieving sinners like a sword that is ready to slay them at any moment. And so we affirm the wrath of God, and we understand the wrath of God, but there is another perspective about the character of God, namely, he is happy, infinitely happy, the most happy being in the universe. 1 Timothy 1.11, notice what Paul says about God, the blessed God. Do you know what the word blessed means? Happy. The blessed God, the happy God. 1 Timothy 6.15, he who is the blessed, same word, and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is the blessed God, the happy God. But what is it that makes God so happy? Have you ever thought about that? What is it that brings joy into the heart of God? There are many things. Let me mention just a few. Number one, God finds joy in Himself and in His own glory. John Piper says it so well, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy Himself forever. A second thing that brings heart to the joy of God is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 42, 1, it is a messianic passage. It talks about how God delights in Christ. At the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, God announces from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the loved one of God, the beloved Son. God finds joy and delight in His Son, Jesus. And thirdly, God finds joy, listen to this, in saving sinners. And that very much appropriately applies to us. Let me remind you of the joy of God in the salvation of wicked, ungodly, hell-deserving sinners like you and like me. In Luke 12 and verse 32, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples, Do not fear, little flock, for the Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. God has chosen gladly to give us the kingdom, to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and to bring us into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven. A few chapters after this in Luke 15, we find the wonderful parables, all of which are related to something that is lost and then is found. The first part of Luke 15 is the lost sheep, and in verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. There is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. In the next parable of the lost coin, verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What makes heaven joyful? What brings joy into the heart of God? It is the salvation, the saving of hell-bound sinners. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says the same thing, a very familiar verse to us. 
Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, the cross itself was not a joy to our Lord, but the effect, the accomplishment of it was, namely our salvation. Micah 7.18, what does it say about God? God delights in mercy. God enjoys giving sinners what they do not deserve. That is the heart of God. That is the nature of God. So God finds joy in us. He finds joy in His people. He finds joy in saving sinners. If you would turn for a moment to Isaiah chapter 62, I want you to see a tremendous passage that illuminates our minds with regard to the joy of God over His people. Isaiah 62 and verse 4 and 5. God is speaking to a people who will experience exile. And upon the return, God is speaking this way to them. It will no longer be said to you forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That is profound language. Do you realize that God himself rejoices over you? That is amazing. That is unbelievable. But that is the nature of God. And so, because God is a God of joy, He wants to share His joy with us. Listen to John Piper one more time. The joy of God went public in the works of creation and redemption. God is an eternal, infinitely happy being, and His joy went public when? When He created the world. Don't you see the joy of God in all of the creation? And further, the joy of God went public in redemption. How does the book of Psalms begin? Think of Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. The entire Psalter begins with how to be happy. How does the Sermon on the Mount begin? Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Repeatedly, Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The word means happy. What did Jesus say to his disciples in his farewell discourse in John 15, in verse 11? These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And so it's the joy of Christ going public and being transferred to his own. And Jesus would even have that joy to be made full and maximized in their lives. So listen very carefully. It is not a sin to want to be happy. Please understand that. Nor is it a sin to pursue happiness. What is a sin is to pursue our happiness and our joy apart from God. In fact, the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is simply trying to find joy and happiness in something other than the God who made you. I want you to listen to something that C.S. Lewis says. And C.S. Lewis has a way of saying things that are very, very profound. 
And I quote him, Our Lord finds our desires for joy not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, end quote. We are far too easily pleased, pleased with idols, pleased with things other than God Himself. Now, with that said, we are going to give our attention this morning to what may be the most well-known verse in all of the Bible on joy, Philippians 4.4. 4. We have even turned this little verse into a song, and if I had much of a voice, I might sing it right now, but I'll refrain from doing that. But we are very familiar with Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. As we have said many times now in our study of the book of Philippians, this little letter is an epistle of joy. Joy is one of the major themes of this book. In every single chapter, Paul talks about joy and or rejoicing for a total of 16 times. That's a lot of joy in this small little book. This book permeates with joy. As we begin to see last time as we come to Philippians 4, we learned that chapter 9, chapter 4 rather, verses 1 through 9 is a new unit in the book and it describes proper Christian conduct. And the overarching thought of this section, verses 1 through 9, is that of warfare. If you will draw your attention to verse 1, notice the last phrase, stand firm in the Lord. That verb, stand firm, in the Lord dominates this whole passage. This is a passage about holy war. We are to stand firm in the Lord. We are battling on three fronts, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and what we are never to do is to cut and run, compromise, or deviate from Christ, but rather we are to stand firm. We are to be strong, to be immovable, unshaken, and then in verses 2 through 9, Paul outlines the Christian war, the Christian fight, if you will. We are to fight for five Christian virtues, all of which are printed for you in the bulletin. Last time we saw that we are to fight for church unity. We are also to fight for constant joy. We are to fight for Christ-like gentleness, fight for courageous faith, fight for consecrated meditation. These are, in effect, our marching orders. Now, as we draw our attention to Roman numeral 2, fight for constant joy, I want to make three observations about Christian joy. There is the duty of Christian joy, there is the basis of Christian joy, and then there is the frequency of Christian joy. So we begin with letter A, the duty of Christian joy joy. Look at verse 4. What's the first word? You can say it out loud. <laughs> Rejoice. Just stop there. This is an imperative in the Greek. It's a command. God commands you and me to what? To rejoice, to have joy. Rejoicing then, beloved, 
is not optional. It isn't optional in the Christian life. In fact, to not rejoice is a sin. To not rejoice would be to break this commandment. Listen to Jeff Thomas. He says this, It is as much a sin not to rejoice as not to repent. Would you agree that it is a sin not to repent? Yes, everyone would agree. Would you agree that to not rejoice is also a sin? Well, it is when you understand that this is something that God Himself commands us. Hold your finger here in Philippians chapter 4 and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. I want to illustrate the reality that rejoicing is not optional for the people of God. God takes our joy very seriously. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is a very long chapter. It reveals, at the beginning of the chapter, covenant blessings to the people of God conditioned upon their obedience. In other words, when Israel goes into the land, if they are to obey the law of God, God will bless their obedience. And He does that in verses 1 through 14. Beginning in verse 15 and going through the rest of the chapter, God begins to outline the covenant curses. That is to say, if the people of Israel go into the land and they do not obey the law of God but disobey God, they will bring upon themselves curses. And I want you to look at verse 47 and verse 48, and I want you to see the language of God regarding joy. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Wow. What is the curse being pronounced here? Exile. And what is the basis of this exile? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and with a glad heart. That offends God. You can serve God mechanically. You can serve God without joy, without a heart behind it, without a feeling, without affection, without warmth, and God is not interested in that kind of thing. God takes joy seriously. Now back to Philippians 4. This is not the first time Paul has commanded the Philippians to rejoice. Back in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Verse 18, You too, I urge you, rejoice, it's a command, in the same way, and share your joy with me. Paul was rejoicing. He tells them to rejoice in the same way that he is rejoicing. And this is not an option. It is a matter of obedience. It is a matter of Christian duty. In chapter 3, in verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That is another command. Are you starting to see how important joy is to the Christian life? It is a duty. It is not optional. Gordon Fee, who is a wonderful commentator, is so bold to say this, quote, Joy is the distinctive mark of the believer in Jesus Christ. We, as the people of God, are to be known for joy. We're to be known for joy. 
Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 8, And although you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. We don't just rejoice, we greatly rejoice, and the joy that we feel is an inexpressible kind of joy. It is a kind of joy that words cannot articulate. But here in chapter 4, verse 4 of Philippians, Paul not only repeats the command to rejoice, he does it twice. Rejoice, again I will say rejoice. Both are commands. Paul is being very emphatic. He is building a case that it is the duty of the Christian to rejoice. And the fact that we are commanded to rejoice, this is, I think, a very important thing to understand. The fact that we are commanded to rejoice indicates that joy is not just an emotion. It does involve emotion. There is emotion in joy, but it's not just some feeling. It's not just some spiritual goosebump. You can't command a feeling. Here's how I would define joy. Joy is a settled disposition of delight in God. It is a settled disposition of delight in God. Another way to define Christian joy is this. It is to treasure Christ above all things. It is to treasure Christ above money, above your family, above your health, above your job, above your hobbies, above everything else. So I ask you, do you have joy? Right now, could it be said that there is a settled disposition in your heart of delight in God? Could it be said right now if we were to pull the flesh off and see what is on the inside, would we see that you are treasuring Christ above all things, above a career, above your family, above money, above retirement, above playing, above hobbies, above everything? That's joy. Now, All of these commands to rejoice assume several things about Christian joy. Let me speak to these. Number one, the fact that Paul has to repeatedly command the Philippians to rejoice indicates that it isn't always easy to rejoice. I think that's fair. The fact that I have to repeatedly tell my kids to clean the room indicates that it isn't easy for them to clean the room. In fact, I did that several times last night. Clean your room, clean your room, clean your room. Paul has to say rejoice, 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 rejoice. It implies that it's not always easy for us. Why? Because of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are at war. And the war that we are engaged in, listen, is a war for joy. The world and the flesh and the devil will seek to rob you of your joy, and therefore you must fight for joy. There are massive temptations that we face every moment of the day not to rejoice. It is easy to disobey this command. Second of all, what this command assumes is this, that joy is a choice. 
It is a choice. It's not just sitting on the couch and being zapped with the Holy Spirit and having a goosebump. This is something that is a choice. This is something that you must choose. You must choose to rejoice. You must choose joy. It is a matter of obedience. You must fight for joy. No ifs, ands, or buts. And then thirdly, joy is not based upon circumstances. We hear that a lot, but it is true. It is not based upon circumstances. In fact, I want you to think with me about the circumstances that the Philippians were in when Paul wrote to them to rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. In chapter 1 and verse 28, Paul says they were facing opponents. In verse 29 and 30 of chapter 1, Paul affirms that they were suffering for Christ. It has been granted unto you to suffer for Christ. They're being persecuted. In chapter 3 and verse 2, we learn that they were being threatened by a group of Jewish false teachers, the dogs, the mutilators, another term for the Judaizers. In chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul says they were being threatened by the enemies of the cross of Christ. And on top of all of these things, they were deeply affected with Paul's situation, his condition in Rome. They were deeply concerned about him. But in the face of persecution and suffering and opponents and false teachers and distress, Paul says, it is your duty to rejoice. Fight for joy. Martin Luther said the Christian ought to be a living doxology. And that is the language of Philippians 4.4. But if our joy isn't based upon circumstances, then what is it based upon? That brings us to the second observation, the basis of Christian joy. We are to rejoice, look at the language of Paul, in the Lord. The basis of our Christian joy is not our circumstances, it is in the Lord. The sphere of our joy is in the Lord. In the Lord is one of Paul's favorite phrases. In chapter 4 already, he has used it in verse 1. We are to stand firm in the Lord. In verse 2, we are to live in harmony in the Lord. And now we are to rejoice in the Lord. Everything about the Christian is in the Lord. The basis of Christian joy is the Lord. It's the Lord. We are to rejoice in God. We are to rejoice in the Lord and in all of His works. So let's remind ourselves, who is this Lord that we are to rejoice in? Who is He? Well, first of all, He is the Creator of heaven and earth. Do you know what God did? He breathed the whole world into existence. God spoke in day one. God spoke day two. Creation is just unfolding from the very breath of God Himself. He is the sovereign Lord of all. Heaven and earth cannot even contain His glory. His glory is so awesome. He is holy. He is righteous. He is merciful. He is good. He is gracious. He is kind. He is happy. And what has He done for you? Well, for starters... From before the foundation of the world, He elected you unto salvation. 
Before you ever existed, God set His sovereign electing love upon you. He predestined you for salvation. In the eternal counsels of the Trinity, it was God Himself who chose that Christ would come into the world and die upon the cross and purchase all of His people. And because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God has justified you, He has regenerated you, and He has promised one day to glorify you. The best for us is yet to come. And between your justification and your glorification, God has promised to pursue you with loving kindness and goodness all of the days of your life, according to Psalm 23, 6. David says, surely your loving kindness and your goodness will chase. Follow is not a good word, chase. It is the word persecute. Your loving kindness and your goodness will chase after me all the days of my life. What a promise. God has also promised to cause all things to work together for your good and to never, ever, ever forsake you. God will remain faithful to you. He has begun a good work in you, and He will complete that work on the day of Christ. Further, He has promised heavenly reward to you, which will never perish. It will never rust. It will never fade away. It will never be stolen. And everything that you do in the name of Christ, even giving somebody a cup of water, will one day be rewarded by Christ. And He has made death to be a gain for you. After describing that God, had, God has mercifully caused us to be born again, that He has given us a living hope through Christ, that He has given us an imperishable inheritance in heaven, that we are eternally secure in our salvation, the Apostle Peter writes, in this you greatly rejoice. We have so much to rejoice in in the Lord. We're born again. We have a living hope. We have an imperishable inheritance. We are eternally secure. And if all of that were not enough, every single thing else you have in your life, God has given to you. Everything. There is nothing you have that is not from God. You live in God's world. You drink God's water. You eat God's food. You breathe His air. You wear His clothes. You have His children. Everything you have is from God. It is in God that we live and move and have our being. But the greatest thing that God has given to you, beloved, is the gift of Himself. God has given Himself to you. Christ is the great reconciler of sinners to God. And the goal of our redemption is to bring alienated sinners who are outside of fellowship with God back into communion with God. And the great reward of salvation is that we get God. That God becomes ours and we become His. And we drink God. We eat God. We feast upon God. He is our exceeding joy. In Him we greatly rejoice. So, beloved, I say to you, rejoice in the Lord. 
If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no reason not to rejoice. No reason. Again, as many times in this book, Paul is our example. Paul is a wonderful leader. He is a marvelous leader, and he leads by example. Do you remember where Paul was when he wrote this book? He was at an all-paid, exclusive resort in Hawaii. And as he penned this epistle of Philippians, he was sitting on the beach watching the waves, and he had just got done surfing, and he was about to go into the spa. He was on a wonderful vacation. Now, he wrote this from Rome. A lot of people would like to go to Rome to visit, but Paul wasn't there on a vacation. He had been arrested in Jerusalem. He almost was killed. He appealed to Caesar, and he was taken there, and he was put into a two-year imprisonment. He was awaiting trial before Caesar, so over his head was a potential death sentence. He was literally chained to a soldier, listen, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Paul had absolutely no privacy. I love privacy. I love to be alone. Paul, for two years, was never alone. Always chained to a soldier. Even while he writes this book, he is chained to a soldier. And in that very unhappy experience, he writes about joy 16 times in this letter. And while he was incarcerated, there were certain jealous preachers from the church at Rome who were using Paul's imprisonment to discredit him. We learn that in chapter 1. And how does Paul respond to that? He rejoices. He rejoices. And this is not the first time the Philippians had seen Paul rejoice in the face of difficulty. You remember the first time Paul went to Philippi, what happened to him? In Acts 16, where does he end up? In jail. Now, Paul may have had the original prison ministry. He was always in jail. And this time, in Acts 16, it was far more unpleasant than here in Rome. He was in stocks, and at about midnight, what is he doing? He is singing praises to God. He is rejoicing to God. He had been beaten with many blows. He had been put into stocks, and yet he is happy. Why? Because God is his exceeding joy. Because of his settled disposition of delight in God. Because Christ is his treasure. I love what St. Augustine said, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. And that was certainly true of Paul. I want you to, again, keep your finger in Philippians 4 and turn with me to Habakkuk. That's one of the minor prophets. And look at the very end of the book, chapter 3. And verse 17 and 18. We looked at this verse some months ago when we did our series on suffering, and it is worth looking at again this morning. This, to me, is one of the most profound statements anywhere in the Bible. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And what Habakkuk is doing is envisioning a time in which life, in which life as we know it is over. 
in which the prosperity that we have enjoyed is now gone. And that what our experience is now is bitter providence. In verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. You know what he is saying? He is talking about a time of desolation. Though I live in a day in which Walmart closes its doors because there is no food. Verse 18, yet I will exult, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. Listen. If everything in life fails, if you lose all of your money, your health, your food, you still have God. And God is our exceeding joy. As long as we have God, we have enough to be happy. Now back to Philippians 4. David Jeremiah is a a good preacher from San Diego, California. And I was reading something that he wrote about where joy isn't found. He says, joy is not found in unbelief. Voltaire is one of the most famous unbelievers, and yet he said, I wish I had never been born. Joy is not found in sinful pleasure. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure, and yet he said, The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Joy is not found in money. Jay Gould, an American millionaire, had plenty of money, and yet he said when he was dying, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Joy is not found in position and fame. Lord Beaconsfield and joy, more than a share of both, and yet he said, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. And finally, joy is not found in military glory. Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day, and yet he wept in his tent, and he said this, there are no more worlds to conquer. Joy is not found in those things. It is found in the Lord. Christ is our treasure. We delight in Him above all things. But now we ask this question. How often are we to rejoice? That brings us to the third observation, the frequency of joy. Rejoice in the Lord. What's the word? Always. You don't even have to look at your Bible. It's so familiar. Both of the commands here in verse 4 are in the present tense, which means that this is a way of life. It is a repeated activity, a repeated action that you rejoice, you keep on rejoicing. And then added to that, Paul has this little adverb, always. He is really stressing here the frequency of our joy. So how often are we to rejoice? Continually, habitually, always. Let me tell you what always means. Are you ready? I did this in-depth Greek study on this word always, and you know what I discovered? It means always. Always. When things are good and when things are bad. 
when things go your way and when things do not go your way, when you are healthy and when you are sick, when you gain something and when you lose something, when you are in the midst of a sweet providence and when you are in the midst of a bitter providence. It is incumbent upon you to rejoice in the Lord always. John Calvin, who was no stranger to suffering, he suffered immensely. And he said this, There is nothing in afflictions which ought to disturb our joy. There is nothing in our afflictions which ought to disturb our joy. Paul said somewhere else, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. No ifs, ands, or buts. No conditions, nothing related to your circumstances. So Paul doesn't say rejoice in the Lord three times a day. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord ten times a day, but always. Most of us can rejoice in the Lord sometimes, but we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord as a way of life. This is radical joy. This is a lifestyle of joy. Now, I know what you may be thinking. You may be thinking that there is something so unique to your life situation, something so difficult to your life situation that you are somehow not required to keep this command. Somehow you may think you are exempt from the frequency of this command. But let me again remind you that Paul is writing this from prison. And let me further remind you that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God himself knows your life situation better than you. And yet he says to rejoice always. God knows full well what you are going through. He understands full well what pain, what difficulty, what suffering you may be experiencing, what trial you may be in. And yet he still says, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. D.A. Carson says, obedience to this command is possible because the ground of this rejoicing is changeless. We can rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord never changes. His love for us is steadfast. Our salvation in Christ is eternally secure. God is always doing us good. Therefore, we can always rejoice in the Lord. No matter what happens, the Lord is on His throne. He remains ever and always sovereign, wise, and good. And we can always rejoice in Him. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to rejoice in everything that happens. I want to make that very fine distinction. We are not to rejoice in everything that happens. There are things that will happen to you that don't make you rejoice. You might get the dreaded phone call. We got a call yesterday that Katie Caroline, this little girl that we've been praying for, who was a dear friend of our family, who was six years old, is that right, Shelley? Died yesterday of a stroke, after having several strokes. And when I got that call, I didn't hang up and and run to Shelly and say, I've got some wonderful news, let me rejoice. There are things that happen that we don't rejoice over. We don't rejoice in everything that happens. But listen, in everything that happens, there is still cause for joy. When trials come, when difficulty comes, when suffering comes, those things are not pleasant in and of themselves. 
But even in the midst of those very painful things, there is still cause for joy, namely that we still have God, that God is still good, that God is still upon his throne, that God is still reigning and ruling over the world and doing everything he can in his power to bring about good for you and for me. One anonymous writer said this, The calendar of the sinner has only a few days in the year marked as festival day. Just think of the ungodly person who looks at his calendar for the year. He looks at Mardi Gras. Well, there's a great day. I'm going to have fun on that day. And and there's this holiday. I'm going to have fun on that day. There's just a few days in the year that are like that. But every day of the Christian calendar is marked by the hand of God as a day of rejoicing. Do you remember Psalm 18? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. So here's a little, uh, little note to think about, a little suggestion. The next time you look at your calendar, type in every single day, rejoice in the Lord always. Do that for every single day of the year because that is the will of God for you. I want you to see another verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that is very applicable to what we are saying here in terms of this mixture of suffering and joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10. As we have already said, Paul was a man who suffered immensely, more than anybody I know. And he's talking about his suffering here in 2 Corinthians. He does this a lot in this book. This is a book about suffering. And in verse 10, I want you to notice this statement, as sorrowful, yet always, what? Rejoicing. So there was real sorrow in the life of Paul, more so than any of us. But at the same time, there was a simultaneous joy. Even while he was experiencing suffering and trial and pain and difficulty in life, there was at the same time in his heart a delight in God, a treasuring of Christ, which was constant. And so that is how it is for us. There is this element of pain, which we are not delivered from entirely in this world, but at the same time there is the reality of joy and rejoicing. Why? In the Lord. It's in God. It's not in our circumstances. When Napoleon was exiled to the island of Elba, in defiance of his, of his fate, here's what he said, happy everywhere. In other words, he was saying, if you send me to this island of exile, I will continue to be happy everywhere. But that's a statement that only the Christian can say. Only we can be happy everywhere because the ground of our happiness is changeless. I have one more text of Scripture for us to look at. It is Psalm 43. This is the psalm that I read earlier in the service in our Scripture reading. And this is a psalm you may have noticed when we read it earlier in which the psalmist is fighting for joy. In verses 1 and 2, he's praying in desperation. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Here is a man in turmoil. 
Verse 2, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? He is sensing the rejection of God. That is his perception of what is going on in his life. Have you ever felt that way? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Here is a suffering psalmist. And then he prays in verse 3, O send your light and your truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. In other words, I'm in the midst of suffering, I'm in the midst of confusion, I have this perception that you have rejected me, so what does he need? He needs to be brought back to God, he needs to be reoriented, he needs a right perspective that he has lost. Verse 4, what is that perspective? Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Here is a man that is fighting for joy. And one of the things that you must do in your fight for joy, listen carefully, is you must talk to yourself. Now, this is biblical. Talk to yourself. Look at verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Who is he talking to? Is there someone else in the room? He's talking to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Listen, there are times in your life and there are very often when you must preach to yourself and not listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. And to elaborate on this, listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, commenting on Psalm 43. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. Think about it when you wake up in the morning. Think about all the thoughts that flood your mind that start talking to you that start telling you to fear, that start telling you to worry, that start telling you not to rejoice, not to trust God. There is this thing that is going on inside of you that is causing a great disturbance. Lloyd-Jones goes on, You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 43 was this. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Preach to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach God to yourself. When your thoughts begin to flood your mind that would rob you of your joy, preach Christ to yourself and choose joy. You must fight for constant joy. There was an occasion in Martin Luther's life where he fell into a very serious depression. And on the third day of this very dark period of his life, Luther's wife came down the stairs dressed in black. She was wearing funeral clothes, mourning clothes. 
Luther asked her, Who's dead? She replied, God. God is dead. Luther rebuked her. What do you mean God is dead? God cannot die? She said, well, based upon how you're acting, it seems as if God has died. What a rebuke. Beloved, the only way that it would be legitimate for you not to rejoice is if God died. But the last time I looked, God is imperishable. He is alive and well. He is the true and living God. And therefore, it is your duty to rejoice in the Lord always again. I say, rejoice. If you would take your bulletin as we conclude and look underneath the outline, we have the meditation theme, and I have entitled this a theology of Christian joy. This isn't an exhaustive theology of Christian joy, but it is a good start, a good foundation. So let's look at these six things very briefly. Number one, Christian joy is a gift from God. It's something that God himself gives to you. Number two, it is a gift from God to all who believe in Christ. That is to say, this is exclusive to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, it is produced by the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural. It is not of this world. It is not of the flesh. Number four, it is maintained by trusting and obeying God's Word. You cannot disobey God's Word and still have joy. Number five, it is not based upon pleasant circumstances and can even exist in the midst of suffering. And then number six, it is commanded, it is to be constant, and it is to be fought for. And then finally, we end with a quote from Spurgeon. He says, it is incumbent upon us as Christians to rise out of our despondencies. Joy should be the normal state of the Christian. What a happy religion is ours in which it is a duty to be happy. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Father, we rejoice in you. We agree with Spurgeon. What a happy religion is ours in which it is a duty to be happy. We thank you that you are so good that you delight in the well-being and the happiness of your people. That you are not oppressive, that you are not a tyrant, you are not cruel, but you are kind and gracious and merciful and good and that you are also unchanging. You are faithful and true. Father, teach us more and more to be the kind of people that rejoice in you always. Lord, there are some who are going through great difficulty, and I pray that you would help them, O God, in the midst of their sorrow to at the same time be always rejoicing. We thank you that Christ is our treasure, that you satisfy our souls with him, and that you have so changed our hearts where our delight is in you and not in this world. We thank you for our time together. 
And we pray that the Spirit would take your word and deeply apply it to our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.